All right. Hello, everyone. You can go ahead and get started. Was anyone, uh, first, was anyone not here last week? No, Dan wasn't. I got hand up. And let's see. Was anyone here not here? Too? There were some people here a couple weeks, weren't here a couple weeks ago who wanted handouts. Oh, Gina was asking. Gina. And Jennifer, you wanted, I think you wanted oh, something. All right, uh, so you have a couple of beefy handouts beefy. from this week, which I mentioned last week I would be, uh, be providing. They are kind of a culmination of the entire, entire time in Revelation. So uh, the first one that says the book of Revelation, allusions, echoes, and parallels on it, uh, that one is essentially in one big table, all of the uh, weekly ones I've been giving you that have references to uh, the Old Testament. Um, I gave you a little bit of an introduction there, and I, one thing I also added was um, in brackets in each entry, if there's a place within Revelation that it connects to or it uses the same phrase in Revelation, I tried to note all of those. I certainly missed um, a lot of them, but uh, hopefully that is helpful. And um, this, this is, this is, uh, will be connected to, I I gave you that handout last week on intertextuality and um, the Bible and uh, the way that it builds off of itself. And so hopefully this is helpful for that. Yeah. Yeah. Page page nine. What is that? Oh, okay. You're looking at the other one. Um, So now if you look at the uh, other handout. I completely forgot about this, but I was talking to Jennifer, and she reminded me of uh, just that something like this would be helpful. And I was like, "Oh, I could, I could do something like this." So this summer, actually, I, I put this packet together. Um, I added to it and whatnot for tonight. But the one that says "index of quotations, allusions, and parallels within scripture." So I give you a bit of an introduction again. There, um, the, the the best introduction will be that little that like five pages that I gave last week on is just titled intertextuality in the Bible um, and that'll explain some of that stuff it'll also explain what you were asking uh, but what what you're asking about uh, Dana is the LXX it's uh, an abbreviation for the Septuagint which is the early translation of the Old Testament into Greek and so um, what I did with this I didn't come up with all of these uh, what this is is actually so the one of the standard editions of the Greek New Testament that you know, like I, I use in school that translators use. Um, it has an appendix that has this entire thing in it. It's just in a different format, and so I, over the summer, took many many hours and entered it all in. And um, but so one, there's a few things to note with that one. It's uh, one, it's a, from a scholarly edition of the Greek New Testament, and so there are these scholars who sat down and um, who said, well, this seems to be a quote, this seems to be an illusion. Um, their word isn't the, the end-all, be-all, it's not infallible, so there are certainly things that they miss, certainly things that they might point out that you might be like, ah, is that really, is that, there really a connection there? Um, one thing to note is that because they're looking at Greek, they're also very, uh, very aware of the 
Septuagint, which I just mentioned, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so if there's places where New Testament authors seem to be dependent on that, they're quoting it or they're using similar words from it, and that would be a source of an illusion, then they note that. And so that's where if you see something and it, it after it says LXX, it's, uh, it's just bringing to your attention that there is a connection between the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the way that the Greek authors of the New Testament are using it. And sometimes you might not even notice. Sometimes it might be phrased a little differently than it was in Hebrew when they translated it. And so if you look at your English Bible, you might go back to your Old Testament and wonder, well, how did they get, how did they get there? And there's some underlying connections that might be there. And a lot of that, a lot of times that is with what I called last week echoes, some of those just faint, um, faint illusions that you get through this repetition of vocabulary or certain words. And so um, hopefully this is helpful to you. It's, yeah, it goes through in uh, the order of the New Testament and shows you all of the quotations. Um, and then it just has the number of illusions. I didn't have to, I, it was going to take me so long to like go through and put all of the, uh, gather all the references for, for each book. Yeah, well, and, and so, so then with, yeah, with this, it, I, I gathered all the quotations and then noted how many illusions there are. And then if you go a few pages further, starting on page five, going down in Old Testament order, it shows you where that book, where something from that book is quoted and where there's an illusion. And so it does actually list out all of the illusions. It just doesn't do it in New Testament order, but they are, they are in there. So, but anyway, I was, uh, I thought this might be helpful as I brought up last week, the importance of, um, the, the Old Testament in the new and seeing those connections and, um, okay, it's one thing to know that that's important, but then it's another thing to actually see those things and, and make note of them it can seem overwhelming and, and uh, how, how are you ever going to be able to notice that? You're not going to be able to notice everything. Um, th this list doesn't take note of everything, but hopefully this kind of jump starts you. This is such a, a strong visual though to realize like this is how the Bible is using the Bible. And yeah. we are supposed to like know at least some of this as we're reading. Like we're supposed yeah. to recognize this. Yeah. Yeah, and again, you'll, I mean, there are, there's absolutely things that they miss that, that you may pick up on and, and find in your own Bible reading. You can add to this list. You can make note of that. So hopefully this is helpful. I have a bunch of extras. So if you, if, uh, and I'll try and get them to the people who weren't here tonight. If you know someone who might want one, uh, then you can grab one for them. And then also it'll be posted online. And so if you wanted to download it, um, you could do that. Uh, other than that, though, those are the, the handouts for tonight. And so hopefully, again, those are helpful for you, uh, especially the Revelation one, which, yeah, just shows, again, like as Sherry mentioned, it's just a visual of how, uh, how, how important uh, the Old Testament is to Revelation when you just have you know, seven pages full of these references to other places in Scripture. And especially the when they're itself. not direct quotations. Like, yeah. that's mind-blowing that... Like Joel was just saying, like there's 636, according to this one list, of illusions. Yeah. In well, and and I I listed a, I listed no direct quotes. I listed more than that because that's 636 according to that yeah. that one table, and I you know think that there's more than that, and I found more, and 
and some of them, and it's counting, that number's counting like, if it alludes to the same exact place in the Old Testament, like in 10 times in Revelation, then that's 10. And so uh, a lot of times you have those things building on one another, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty uh, crazy when you see how, how rampant John's uh, use of intertextual allusion is. So. I remember I shared when we first started Revelation that we have a professor and he has in his Bible, he actually color codes whenever the Old New Testament authors are quoting the Old Testament or making an allusion. So you can see it like when he's reading the New Testament, he can see like he's penciled it and stuff. And I, I shared that I, I asked like, how do I get a list like that? Because I didn't know Matt was working on a list, but um, he said, read your Bible. But I remember when I was in his class, um, that was Hebrews Revelation. I mean, like the entire book was basically colored because every single almost everything from it is from somewhere else in scripture oh. so yeah it's um it's amazing like again it's one of my favorite things to talk about and see is the way that the, the new testament authors use the old testament and the way it should then shape how we read bible so uh very important stuff uh only sense yeah because it's preached the new testament is the of the old testament yeah it makes sense that they all be tied together. Yeah. When you sit down to study, how long are you at? <laughs> uh, a long time, usually. I would have said. Yeah. Hours, right? Yes, yeah. I, I don't even know. And, and again, that wasn't like my own work. That was like, uh, I mean, that was this summer. I just pulled up the appendix and was just typing in each reference. And so, but uh, yeah, I like to. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I like to spend uh, most of my free time studying. So, um, but yeah, if you have any any questions or anything with that, any uh, any questions about anything we talked about last week with intertextuality or allusions, hopefully that's all again beneficial as you are on the journey of, of reading God's word. Um, well, this week as we we finish out our uh, our time together we'll have uh, a little bit of time at the end that I, I put together like a little you know survey just I want feedback a big thing with this and as I mentioned last week uh, we want to do things like this again and so uh, just feedback on uh, things about the format in the class and comments uh, there and then suggestions for what you would like in the future uh, and things that may be of interest to you uh, and then what we'll do until then, though, we'll do that at the end of, at the end of our time together. Uh, we will spend some time looking at uh, biblical theology and revelation. And this was something that a few weeks ago I brought up when we talked about Babylon and Babel. And so uh, just a reminder, what is biblical theology? I won't read my whole definition again. I'll give you the nice uh, short one from my professor. It says, biblical theology studies the main ideas of the Bible tracing the Bible's own words, thought patterns, and shape to see its unity within its diversity. And so, um, several important things there. It's tracing, uh, tracing main ideas of the Bible. It's, it's tracing uh, things that are important, that are emphasized throughout the scripture, and that can be its own words. It can be a single term. Uh, you can trace the, the, uh, the word seed throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, something that you get in the very beginning of, of Genesis, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. You could trace that 
converts a theme. And that's, we'll, we'll do a little bit of that, of that tonight. Um, uh, there's a whole lot that you can do there. And in my, my definition, I expand on that. And so you can look at the theology of a particular um, book or of an author. What is the, the theology of, uh, of, of Paul and his writings, looking at all of his letters. Uh, you could look at a whole um, canonical section, whether that's the, the Gospels or uh, the Prophets or you could even look at the entire Old Testament and the entire New Testament um, or the entire scripture. And so it's, it's tracing these things through those sections. Uh, one thing that you are also going to focus on is, is both the unity and the diversity of scripture. Um, systematic theology, in contrast, is, is theology that is, uh, is taking um, categories outside of the text and asking what does the Bible teach about um, whatever, fill in the blank. And it's then going to go throughout the whole Bible and try and pull verses and gather together and come up with a, a formulaic doctrine for what, what we believe about this. And, um, and what you're doing with systematic theology is you're, you're stressing the unity of Scripture. You're stressing uh, how can we take all of the Bible's teaching on this one subject and, and formulate it into a, a belief statement. What do we believe? Uh, and biblical theology is going to show the unity, but it's also going to, to let the, the diversity stand. How, how John talks about salvation might be different than how Paul talks about salvation. And so not, um, not trying to collapse those two together, but allowing them to speak on their own and then pulling that all together to show a holistic picture of what the Bible says about this topic. Um, so using the, the Bible's own words, its own categories of thought. It's another thing that sets it apart from systematic theology. Uh, and again, the goal is, is seeing the unity and diversity. A lot of times that means seeing the unity uh, and diversity between the Old and New Testament. So you draw in um, topics like the Old Testament's use or the New Testament's use of the old, things that we've talked about. Um, and so again, biblical theology studies the main ideas of the Bible, tracing the Bible's own words, thought patterns, and shape to see its unity within its diversity. Does that make sense? I think we're tracking on what biblical theology is. And, and then both kinds are good and important. Mm -hmm, both kinds are, are good and, and important. Um, I think this is important when it comes to studying the Bible and seeing uh, the message that that the authors intend and drawing that out. Um, but yes, ultimately we, we need to, we have questions and answers and things that um, we, we believe that are, are more than just uh, you know, what, what one author says about um, a topic. So, all right, well, if there's no questions there, it's just a definition of biblical theology. Hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll start to make more sense as well as we see it in practice. And so uh, what we're going to do is trace some themes to Revelation. So I need a volunteer. You're not going to have to do anything. Oh, yeah, it's me then. Okay, Joel. <laughs> All right, choose a topic. Worship, hope, the world, kingdom of God, time, light. and light. All right, light. So a biblical theology of light. And I will say all of these... Uh, these slides, my professor, who I've mentioned many times, Ray Lubeck, is 
just graciously allowed me to use his PowerPoints until you even get to see his PowerPoints, which are fun. Uh, they're a bit different than my PowerPoints. So um, this is his, his material, which I'm adapting. And, um, but I'm going to talk about a biblical theology of life first. And we'll, we'll unpack everything in full detail. Hopefully we can get through most of these themes. But uh, for starters, we'll go through light. So biblical theology of life. First, if we think about light in other religions, um, you, you have a lot of different, a lot of different views. And, and light, it, it's something that, it's interesting, it's important to a lot of other beliefs. And so in Buddhism, a Buddhist is an enlightened one. Ancient Egyptians, they have their, their highest god, Ra, who is the sun god. Um, Zoroastrianism, it's a cosmic struggle between light and dark. Astrology, study and worship of the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, Gnosticism, light equals knowledge into divine secrets. Uh, at this place called Qumran, it's actually where they discovered the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. There was this community and they, they, had, the, they had this belief that there was just this, this war between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. And so, for some reason, light and the sun, it's, uh, it's of importance to a lot of people. And so... In the Bible, when we talk about light, light is the first thing created by God. God says in Genesis 1-3, let there be light. The sun, moon, and stars are the timekeepers. They make the appointments with God. They mark the appointed times with God, Genesis 1-14. And you have uh, in the covenants, you know, covenant is the sign, is the rainbow, the Abrahamic covenant, your offspring shall be as many as the stars in the sky. Uh, Joseph dreams of future power. He sees, uh, sees the sun, the moon, and the stars. God reveals himself to Moses as, uh, at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Yahweh leads the people by a pillar of fire. The future king of Israel and the world will be a rising star in Numbers 24. Heavens declare God's power, sovereignty, and majesty. The skies, the stars, the sun, they'll declare his power. We have several places in scripture where it just directly says God is light. And God's word is light. Your word is a, is a light for my path and a lamp for my feet. Beautiful verse in, in Psalm 119. And the light in the sun, they're signs of God's faithfulness to his covenant with David. And so, light is, is important in the Bible. There's so many other things, I won't even go through all of them, but um, Isaiah, big focus on light. The Messiah will be a light to the nations. Magi follow the star. Uh, Christ himself is a light. Christians are to be a light. Uh, Christian life is described as living in the light versus living in darkness. There will be everlasting light in heaven. The, the Lamb will be our lamp. God will be the light. We see in Revelation 22. And so what are some conclusions that we, that's just brief going through a bunch of different instances in Scripture about light. And so what, what can we conclude based off of what the Scripture shows us uh, about light and its importance? And so here's a big idea. Light throughout the Bible indicates that God is revealing truth. In some cases, God is revealing the truth about himself. 
Thus the, mu- the sun, moon, and stars display his power, his order, his sovereignty, and his provision. It's referred to as general revelation. Since the movement of the sun, moon, and the stars are our means of telling times, they also serve as a cosmic alarm clock to tell us when to set apart, uh, set aside rather, special times with God. Sabbath, for example. God further uses other means of special revelation, which are also referred to as light. So salvation from enemies and from sin is described as dawning light. His written word, the Bible, is a lamp and a light which directs us in the right way to follow him, an idea further exemplified in the pillar of fire which directed the children of Israel in the wilderness. God affirms his presence through light, especially at the making of covenants and of giving new revelations. The making of covenants uh, uh, and at special uh, moments of of his revelation, Moses in the burning bush, Noah, Abraham, uh, he, he shows up in light. Ultimately, God himself is life, the source of all truth about himself, ourselves, and the world in which we live. The ideas of a revelation, and B, truth-telling and truth-bearing, C, the arrival of salvation, D, new covenant-making, and E, the establishment of a new kingdom order, converge in the person of Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. So Jesus is rightly described the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world, brings all of these things. He's uh, he's God's direct revelation. He is the word of God. He is, is truth. His word is truth. He brings salvation. He brings a new covenant and establishes a new kingdom. It all comes to a head in Christ himself. And so since we are the people of God, uh, since we as the people of God are unified in and with Christ, we share in his mission of being like to the world. In other words, we reveal God's truth about reality to all other peoples. Through us, God communicates to the world his plan, his truth, and his love. We join the ranks of the sun, moon, stars, rainbows, the burning bush, the pillar of fire, the Bible, Jesus, and God as the light of the world, bringing news of salvation and hope to all peoples. So here are some corollary applications. In our contemporary world, we can now control and manipulate light in many ways, from artificial lights in our buildings and on the roads, digital scanners, special effects photography, ultraviolet light, and laser surgery. We have the ability to measure it and understand it, both as wave frequencies and as photon particles. Biblically and practically, however, light seems to be connected to openness to the truth. As God's revelation, he is exposing the truth about our world, and we need to receive, accept, and adopt his truth as the truth. I see being open to his truth in a number of dimensions. So, so he's contrasting this with, um, in our world we control light, um, biblically and practically, it's about light controlling us, in a sense, being open to the light. And so openness suggests to the past, active exercise of our memory, memory, for example, remember and do not forget in Deuteronomy, remembering at the celebration of communion, belief in the truthfulness of the Bible, inerrancy, versus spiritual amnesia or repression. These are ways that we are open to the truth, to the light. We can be open to the light by uh, an openness to the future, hope, expectation, and anticipation versus despair, apathy, fear of commitment, pessimism. 
openness to creation, God's stewardship and care and creativity versus possessiveness, consumerism and waste. Openness to others, community with the people of God, selfless love toward all versus individualism, manipulation, objectifying. Openness to God, transformation, trust, living by faith versus materialism, living by sight. Those are all ways that we uh, are open to the light. And so, in conclusion, living as light means being open and committed to the truth. Truthful thinking, study, meditation, surrounding ourselves with wisdom, truthful speaking, saying what is right in order to build others up, and truthful actions, right living, which is consistent with God's truth. So that is just his brief theology of light. Seeing light in the scriptures, um, is that helpful for showing on a whole scripture level, tracing something like light and seeing all the different ways it's used and then coming down to some conclusions about what does the scripture show about light? Um, what does light signify? And he, he pointed out several things there. Is that, did everyone track with that? Is that helpful? Yeah, and then so the benefit of that is as you read scripture and you come across light, and you have this context of how else it's used in scripture as well as the richness of that word. And exactly. As you familiarize yourself. Yeah. Yeah, and when you, you know, when you get to statements like when Jesus says, I am the light of the yeah. world, uh, there's significance in that. That is rooted in an entire narrative of scripture and what it shows about light um, in creation, in the covenants, in God's word, in salvation. Uh, so there's a, there's a, lot of, a lot of things bound into that. Yeah, Sherry, did you? I was just going to say, I think for me, one of the things that's really good in seeing something like that is to think that it's not just about the word light either, like where I look up all the verses just to see where, where light is used, because when I think about the burning bush and I think about the pillar of fire and all those kinds of things that are the expression of light in a place, it gives me a much richer picture of that, and I think it helps me get down the road to kind of finding a fuller meaning of what light means as opposed to just leaving it in a very kind of, um, I don't want to say systematic way, but just where I'm pulling verses out that just all say light and not mm -hmm. really having the full picture of what the Bible is doing with light. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all right. it's hard to wrap our brains around. Like yeah. Think about all, like light, all the ways light is used. Yeah. Any other thoughts on, on light in, in the Bible? So let's say you pulled up oh, just the word light and you about you can maybe find some different meanings, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, you oh yeah. You can Greek. So then that kind of helps you too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it does. And that's, that's the place, that's always the place, yeah. That's always the place to start is seeing, you know, these words and then also seeing how it goes, goes deeper than that, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, another volunteer? Mm -hmm. yeah, painless. painless. You just have to choose a topic. Worship. <laughs> what, sorry? Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I was thinking worship. Worship, uh, worship? yeah, you want to, we can do worship. Uh, let me get that one up. Well, it also helps you in your apologetics, because 
always understood that light is truly important, but I don't have the ability to put all that into words, mm -hmm. you know. And that's part of part of being a Christian is to be able to practice apologetics and explain to people why what it is we actually believe. So. All right. Now we'll talk about worship, and this is uh, specifically <coughs> worship in the book of Revelation. And so, um, my professor titled this Words of Worship in Revelation. Interesting. Uh, so if you, think about, if you think about a book a book of worship in the Bible, most people probably think of the book of Psalms uh, as a book of songs of worship. Maybe if you took a Sherry's Bible study, you talk about uh, some other important things. When we look at the word worship, the word itself, it's found more times in Revelation than it is in the book of Psalms, which, again, most people don't think of worship when they think of Revelation. Uh, and in Revelation, when we think about worship, we find two different uh, categories. So we find uh, words of worship related to what he has done, what God has done. And we find words of worship related to what, he, what we should say, names and descriptions of God. So I won't read uh, all of these verses, but here's just an example. So to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. So uh, we go back. What he has done, he loves us. He's freed us from our sins by his blood. He's made us to be a kingdom and priests. He is coming. And then what we are to say well, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And again, amen. Another example. The four living creatures in chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And so, what he has done, or who he is, he's the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. He created all things. By his will they were created and have their being. And so in response... Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the one who was and who is and who is to come, they offer him glory, honor, and thanks. You alone are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Boy, maybe, you know, after seeing this, you know, it kind of gives a new perspective on how I should pray, that mm -hmm. not just... You know, thank you, Lord, and then put a list of things I want to do. I can spend more time worshiping and acknowledging who He is, and not, not only who He is, but what He's done. Mm -hmm. you, are, you are right on. Yeah. And that's uh, one of the things that Revelation shows us. 
Yeah. Yeah. We should. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is just every every single passage. But here's um, it's a list. So he loves us. He frees us from sin. He made us reign. He's coming. He sits on the throne. He lives forever. He created. He sustains. He's the seal opener. He's the lamb who was slain. He purchased us. He gave us salvation. He reigns. He has wrath to come. Uh, he judges. He rewards. He destroys. Uh, praise him for his deeds. He condemns. He avenges. And so what we should say, glory, power, amen, holy, Lord God Almighty, was, is, is to come, honor, sits on the throne, lives forever, thanks, worthy, lamb, wealth, wisdom, strength, praise, the one who is and who was, great and marvelous, just, true, king of the ages, hallelujah, rejoice, be glad, worship. We see this again, what he has done, who he is, what he will do, and a response. What we should say, how we should praise him. And so, we should ask, why is it so important for us to use the right words? <laughs> so that we know how to talk to God in prayer. So that we know how to talk to God in worship. So that we know how to talk to, about God to others. It's important for us to use right words in prayer, in worship, in talking to God about others. And so this, again, this, this damage, it, it should shape, for one, the way we pray. Um, it is not wrong to ask God for things. It is not wrong to bring your petitions and your concerns, your struggles, your uh, all the suffering you're going through before him. Um, it is right and it is good, and we see that in Scripture. It's not wrong to uh, to focus just on on, on that in uh, some scenarios. But what we see not only in Revelation but in other places in Scripture as well, this praising of God, um, this exalting of Him, not because we expect anything from Him or because we are just wanting to, to talk to Him real quick and submit our request and be done, but it's uh, this desire to worship God, to overflow in praise and thanksgiving because of who He is and what He has done. And so we know how to talk to God in prayer. Probably my final prayer is there are any words big enough? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he words big enough. I think He just says, you know, something like, Lord, I know You're sovereign and in control over everything. And even though I don't understand the mystery or your plan, I will still um, submit to you. I will still acknowledge you. I will still follow you. And, you know, and I think that's what he wants to hear. And that's, that's what no matter what it means to me personally, yeah. I'll still follow you. Yeah, yeah and, and, and you're right. It is hard to find words, and I'm... I don't know what words to use, and so how great is it when God? How great is it when God gives us words? You know, God gives us words to use, and um, that is, is very great. And, and in our worship, the words we use, and um, we've we've thought about this a lot at Harvest in the past couple of years. And I know Sherry and um, the staff have thought about even like the songs we play on Sunday mornings. Um, what do those songs say? And, and 
I think, based off of the book of Revelation, not to mention the rest of Scripture, but even from Revelation, something that we could draw is that the words we use are important, and the way that we, we talk and think about God matters, and so we've put an effort into singing songs as we sing with one another praises to God, songs that reflect his majesty and his truth and who he has revealed himself to be in scripture. And so again, the best way, the best way to do that then is to just sing scripture, use the language of scripture. Well, Revelation uh, song. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and, I, I, I mean, I always feel like some of the best songs are the ones that the, the musician didn't even, they really just rearranged words from scripture. Um, it's not so much their own creative talents, but that they took God's word and, and made it into a song. And so, um, I think also um, even it's easy to think just about music because that's something that we do when we're together as the church. But I think it also is about how we talk about God when just in all the things that we talk about when we're together as the church, when we're talking about coming to the scripture, when we're praying, or when we're just explaining why we're doing the things that we're doing, the language of the scriptures is what enlarges our hearts and minds to see who God is, and it gives meaning to all the things that we would do. And I know I was super convicted just in this in myself a couple of years ago, and I, I just thought, Lord, I, I want to use, and, and I, when I say right, I'm not saying that right versus wrong, although I do think there are wrong words, but I, I thought, Lord, I want to use right words when I speak about you, particularly when I'm with your church, when I am up front in the thing that you've given me to do. I want to make sure that the words that I use are the words that your scripture says are the words that speak about who you are. And um, and that was really convicting, but good, because then I just learned, like, well, what are the words? <laughs> They're right here. They're all like, thank you, Lord, that you've given them to us, that well, we can learn to speak rightly. I get compliments a lot. And it's not because, because, I, because I try to follow God's plan and do what he says I should do. So I get compliments a lot from other people who aren't Christians. And it's like, well, all of it. You know, I do the whole, it's not me, it's this, but I don't ever, I never give God the credit, hardly ever. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, that's the way the Lord wants me to do it. That's why I do it that way, you know. And, well, it builds up, I think, by um, worship. Hearing myself say, you were always with me, I see you, and what you've done in my life, it, it, it builds up my faith that no matter what happens in the future, he's the same God that helped in my past through troubles, and so he's going to be there for me, and no matter what happens in the future, it almost causes me to relax more. It's like he's taken care of me this far through all these trials and tribulations in my personal life, then he's going to be there throughout mm-hmm. until the end. And yeah. it causes me to remember. Yeah. Yeah, so worship is, um, is important in Revelation. And one of the things that I, one, one of the reasons I love the book of Revelation the most is the portrait of God that we find. And um, I can't read the prayers or the, uh, the, the songs without walking away and just being, uh, being filled with, with awe and wonder at um, our, our great God and, 
so that's another thing as you know amidst all the confusing parts of the book or the things that are debated or, or that people have opinions on um, when you read the book just it, it should make us worship it should leave us in awe and so that's the question does did the book of revelation cause you to awe you can just think on your own names or descriptions of God used in scripture that cause in you a sense of awe or wonder a descriptive word a phrase a name or title of God a sentence or thought for me I, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is in, in Exodus 34 when the Lord reveals himself to Moses on the mountain and, uh, and on, on Mount Sinai and he uh, proclaims his name to him. And so the Lord descends, Yahweh descends and he says, Yahweh is Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in covenant love and faithfulness keeping covenant love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no, by no means clear the guilty. I, uh, that, I love that, that picture of God who reveals himself, who reveals himself in his name, uh, and who describes himself in this way, Yahweh, Yahweh, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in covenant love, it's, it's beautiful enough. It's actually, when you look at Scripture, that is, it's uh, Scriptures talking about God. The Old Testament quotes that verse six or seven times. It uses the language of Scripture to talk about God. Um, it, it's something that is, is key when, when thinking about God, this description of himself. God chose to describe himself, and those were the words that, First came that out of the speaks of a boldness to a courage. Um, a coward, if God was a coward, he wouldn't tell anybody that he's all powerful. He'd just sit back and take pot shots at people. You know, <laughs> that's what a coward does. He sits and hides somewhere, grabs people when they pass by, or, you know, boldness is this is who I am, this is what I'm going to do. You know, um, if, he was, if God was a coward, he would do all he's going to do, but not tell anybody first. Yeah. And when you, when you tell somebody what you're going to do before you do it, that's a statement of courage, a statement of conviction, a statement of, you know, to put it in human terms, you know, it's not something that's something cowardly. Something cowardly is planning things behind your back. You know, God doesn't plan things behind people's back. It's all been stated, you know, it, it, and the fact that the world wants to ignore it doesn't mean it hasn't been stated. It just means that they're ignorant, yeah. purposefully. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I think the reason that God, through the Scripture, shows tells in advance what He's going to do is because He's proving out that He's God. Yeah, He's proving out that He's God. Well, that He's the one who yeah. did it. Whatever it's, happened, it was Him. He said He was um, doing it. It happened. It was yeah. Him who did it. It's His statement of His conviction. Yeah. 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 What other, are there any other names that you can think of just in scripture or descriptors? I, I mean, even in Revelation, Alpha and Omega, that's a, a, thinking about that, or the one who was and who is and who is to come. 
Jesus's titles for himself. I am the good shepherd. I am uh, the, the living water. Um, there's so many things. You know, when he chooses language like the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, there was no beginning and there is no end. <laughs> he's lim- I mean, he's, he has to use language that we understand to communicate to us. Uh, it, the fact that, that the limits of our understanding are just the beginning of who he is, pretty much. Um, is, that's what boggles my mind when I think about things like that. Yeah. It's like, as much as I understand, there's way more. <laughs> So here's the exhortation. Be awful, be awed, be wonderful, and behold your God. So there's theology of worship in Revelation. All right, so we have time, hope, the world, and the kingdom of God. Someone shout one out. Hope. All right. important um, important theme in scripture and even if you were here at uh, this morning in the, the Advent reading um, Scott read uh, read scripture and he talked a little bit about hope and our, our hope as Christians it's not just a, uh, a a wish and what we want in the future it's this um, firm belief and grounding in what will happen and so especially in the New Testament this concept of, of hope and expectation is very important. So, um, really hope, the question of hope is, is what will happen in the future? And what are we looking forward to? And so, uh, if we compare Christian theism and atheism, what will happen in the future to our body? Well, you either have resurrection and decomposition. Spirit, eternal life, well, spirit's non-existent. You're an atheist. Uh, this species, it endures. In Christian belief or in atheistic belief, it's eclipsed, then extinct. To the universe, Christians believe in the new heavens and earth. And there is some heat death. It blows up whatever happens in atheism. And so when we think about Christianity, our beliefs and the, the beliefs of the world, it's, there's... There's a different content, a much different content to our hope. So what is the content of our hope? There's several things we can point to. For one, uh, Jesus' coming, or the the parousia is uh, the the Greek word for coming or advent. Uh, The the coming of Christ is something that we look forward to. 
in 2 Timothy, we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Revelation, Behold, I am coming soon. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. And let me find another verse. Yeah, I thought that was yeah. I think that should be that should be Titus. But anyway, we we await the blessed the blessed hope of our Lord Jesus Christ and His return. Another aspect of our hope is the future resurrection and glorified bodies. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what He will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. 1 John 3.2 In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, the body that is sown is perishable. I'm going to try to be gentleman for the last two screens. Can you go back to the very one where you put up, um, not that one. Yes. Can you explain that um, resurrection to composition? I don't get that. Uh, that's just that's it's just contrasting between Christian belief and and other beliefs, especially atheistic beliefs. That what's going to happen in the future to our bodies? Well, Christian belief will be resurrected, and uh, other beliefs you'll just decompose in the ground. So Paul writes, "The body that is sown is perishable." It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And in this chapter, he looks forward to the future resurrection uh, when we will be made like Christ, when we will receive glorified bodies. Another thing we look forward to is vindication. The Lord Yahweh will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. Each person was judged according to what He had done. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, those who reverence your name, both great and small, and destroying those who destroy the earth. There's a, a hope and looking forward to vindication and uh, the, the writing of what is wrong. We also look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Isaiah 65, which is where uh, John in Revelation draws the language from for his vision of the new heavens and a new earth. Okay, when, you say, when it says uh, the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, so our families who we love that aren't born again, they're lost and will be in heaven and we won't remember them. I think it's, it's speaking poetically about the, uh, the, the amazing um, beauty and nature of the new creation that we won't long for the old creation anymore. We won't long for the former things. Um, I don't know how it works out with our memory 
or or whatnot, but we know there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain and sorrow. going to say this is a really good example of following the themes of biblical theology and like letting them show us a big picture that then does either answer the questions that we have or it helps us to ask a new question um if that makes sense like sometimes the questions that we're asking if we keep tracing the just the big picture like of this this hope idea and we get the fullness of the big picture, we realize, oh, our questions are answered, or we realize, oh, it, it's, it's pointing me to something different. It's pointing yeah. me to think about something different than I'm thinking about. Paul writes in Romans 8, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. There is a hope for the new heaven and the new earth. Um, this is a good quote from scholar named N.T. Wright, I would not recommend all of his writings, but this is a provocative and, I think, helpful quote. The New Testament offers us glimpses of where the story is to end, not with us going to heaven, as in many hymns and prayers, but with new creation. Um, I think that he rightly points out that sometimes we maybe focus wrongly on what our, our expectation is. I, I think that, that we can... Um, that, that it's, it's, it's much broader than um, just our own individual salvation. And so we need to see in Scripture that uh, there is this balance of um, the salvation of individuals and then the, the restoration of, of creation and of all things, the salvation of the cosmos, the salvation of uh, the, the earth. And so uh, we can hold both of these things together and that's one thing biblical theology does is, is shows you know who emphasizes what where these things are, are drawn out and so um, the the hope of the new creation it, it shows us that this is this is the whole earth the new heavens the new earth it's not um, just about us another aspect of this is looking forward to no more pain no more evil. The, the, looking forward to shalom, which is uh, the, the Hebrew word for peace. And so in Revelation 21, 4, it says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And uh, that's another important theme in scripture is, is this concept of uh, shalom or peace and wholeness and uh, peace in, in the Bible and that word shalom it's not um, just about the, the absence of these things that you know you kind of shovel it on it and, and 
calm everything down and uh, you're able to get some peace. But it's, it's about the, uh, the, 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 the wholeness. It's about being complete, about being whole, things as they should be. And so uh, in, in the future, we look forward to God making everything as it should be, complete and whole. Uh, the English translation of Shalom. Yeah, yeah. That's why Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Jerusalem is city peace. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, the other aspect of this is what we look forward to is the fellowship in God's presence, and we see this. Um, we see this so clearly in the end of Revelation. Now the dwelling place of God is with man. He will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. We look forward to actually being in the presence of God. Revelation 22 says, and, and they will see his face. Um, they won't need, we don't need a light or, or, a, or the sun. God will be our light. The, lamp, uh, the lamb will be our lamp. Um, it's a beautiful promise that we look forward to. And so um, all of this is is a part of the New Testament teaching, the whole scripture's teaching on hope. Um, we use, I mean, we just throw around that word so often, um, hope, and we, we don't, uh, I, I think, see in it what, what the Bible has poured into this concept. And this is, again, as Sherry mentioned, a great, um, a great study for biblical theology, seeing all that the Bible shows us about hope what we look forward to um, when we even I mean it's common around uh, Christmas time you see signs that say hope and joy and peace um, but what is the the true biblical concept of of, of hope and um, even in our language it's so easy to say oh yeah I hope this happens and you know I hope this happens and this but um, what is our hope as Christians um, that's, that's something I wrestled with early on being Christian, with the difference between Christian hope and worldly hope is a wish. You know, I wish this would happen, I wish that would happen, I hope this happens, I wish it would happen. It's the same thing. Um, our hope is something that's stated by God um, and it's firm and secure. It's, it, it's a fact, the already not yet thing. Yeah. So Sherry and Joel, did you have all of that in mind when you named your daughter? I hope so. <laughs> we just knew there'd be lots of Christmas ornaments, joy and hope, you know. <laughs> uh, here's, a, here's a quote uh, about why as, as Christians we don't dwell on these things. It says, perhaps we do not dwell on distinctively Christian hope because we have bought into modern promises. Of increased leisure and wealth through technological progress of longevity and health through medical advance, of peace through reasoned discussion, of security through retirement planning, of technology or the market or political program saving us from the ills we fear. As I understand, we're, as, a Christ, as Christians, we're supposed to do most of that and. Well, yeah, and that, 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 that our, our hope is not in those things. Yeah. And our, the promise of hope, the hope that we, we long for is not uh, in those. Things. Yeah. That's not the source of our hope. We're still not supposed to stop planning and making plans and doing things the way yeah. we, you know. Yeah. 
that's not the target of our hope. And so I, I think this slide that showed like what is the content of our hope is super important because I just think about how, like you said, how much we talk about the word hope. But if we really said, well, what do we mean when we say that? Like, what are we hoping? What are, and he, what, here what he fleshes it out. In the face of this pessimism, however, Christianity offers not cheery optimism, but divine promises. And again, hope for most people, it's, it's about optimism, right? It's about just hoping for the best. Uh, Christianity doesn't offer that. It offers divine promises. In the face of death, we have the promise of resurrection. In the face of illness and disability, we have the promise of redeemed bodies. In the face of environmental degradation caused by greed and carelessness, we have the promise of a creation freed from bondage. In the face of war, oppression, and social conflict, we have the promise of an eternal kingdom of peace. These promises are a Christian's hope. Quote from an Old Testament scholar says, Hope is Christian hope as long as a dynamic tension exists between the present enjoyment of the benefits of God and the yearning for the fullness of our redemption. Enjoying what God has given us in the present and longing for the fullness of our redemption. um, I feel that I have quite a lot. God has given me quite a lot especially in the last 10 years or so. Um, I traded all of you just come and take, take possession, you know. Hmm. I, it, Maranatha. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Any, uh, any thoughts on, on hope in the Bible? Because that would affect me. That would affect lots of people that don't even know him, you know. But I think... This one um, was really good because, um, I mean, you pointed it out, and I was thinking about it as we we're going through this. This is, it's not a, hope is rare, rarely used in a negative way, but typically there is a specific <clears throat> way that it's used. And so, yeah, I uh, hope my 401k does well. Yeah. But that's not where my true biblical spiritual hope lies in the success of that or anything like that. But this is one where, like, really think about what hope is, it is in contrast, um, I guess, with the world's perspective on hope. Mm-hmm. This one is more, light makes sense of like truth, you know, whatever. Um, what is that truth is different, but this one's was really good. So understanding biblical and biblical theology, key concepts and how mm-hmm. the Bible has to say it, but then that's good. Really good. Yeah. yeah. I'm studying Romans and I love this, Romans 5, 5. This hope will not disappoint us. Mm-hmm. So there is no what you said. There, there is no. Let's hope it's crossing fingers. Yeah. It will. It will not disappoint. Yeah. Again, it's, it's not cheery optimism. It's uh, secure because it is uh, promises of God and His speaking. What He tells us is His doing. Right. It is yeah. His yeah. speaking. Uh, if He says it, it is as good as done. Isaiah 55, his word will not be turned away. is his absolute sovereignty. And, and stop and think about what omniscience actually is. There ain't nothing anybody can do. I mean, what he says, he's already seen. Seen to it, knows what every aspect of it. I can't even begin to imagine how the mind of God has figured this all out. You know? 
Thanksgiving. Yeah. He knows every thought, every every feeling, every, and it doesn't matter if you're a good person or an evil person. He knows all everything you're going to do and take and feel already before you do it. You know, and and your every plan and the, the plans you're going to give up and have do what's tomorrow. It just doesn't. It, I don't understand how it, it, it is mind-boggling, and it's even more mind-boggling is how people think they can defeat a god <laughs> like that. that. That's like, where do you come up with this? You're going to beat him at his own game. <laughs> yes. All right. Um, time, the world, and the kingdom of God. Time. Time. Okay. So Matt, can I ask a question? Here's a um, just a like an example. I'm just thinking back as we're going through these now of the difference between what you said systematic theology is and biblical theology. So in a in a way that systematic would be as if I was saying, gosh, I really am hoping that this thing happens someday. God does this, and then so I'm going to go look up all the verses that find where God. I see that in the Bible says that God will do this thing that I want to happen or that I hope will happen, mm-hmm. as opposed to seeing, following the theme that the Bible takes, either the book of Revelation or whatever, and says, oh, this is what it's showing me I should be hopeful in. Yeah, and uh, when, we, when we talk about um, eschatology or theology of the end times, um, we can gather together all these things, you know. And in in, when Jesus returns, there will be uh, there will be the in, the inauguration of the new heavens and the earth, and gather together these passages that show this. Uh, we'll see that it's going to be the redemption of creation, and people are going to be vindicated. We're going to be given glorified bodies, and show where Scripture speaks of these things, and kind of come to uh, these conclusions about. Um, about what's going to happen uh, at the end. And, and maybe we're coming with this question of what's going to happen when Jesus returns. Coming with this question, trying to find things that fill it out. Um, whereas biblical theology, we're, we're reading the scriptures and we're seeing the things that are emphasized and these themes that are, are present throughout and the ways that concepts or words or um, ideas get repeated or get built on. And so... Um, then at the end we we um, come to we draw conclusions and see okay this is what scripture has shown hope is um, it, does does that help at all yeah I'm just thinking like it's I don't want to just um, revert to thinking about these categories and then just finding verses that fit into that but rather seeing how like the thing that you said that was really good right there was just how these things are built on. Yeah. Throughout the scriptures. And the first thing you said that's where prosperity gospel comes from is people looking for the, the scriptures, and there's plenty of them that say you cannot give the Lord this and that. And that's how prosperity gospel. Yeah, just take, taking things out yeah. of context. Yeah. yeah. All right, a biblical theology of time and revelation. So, first, well, what, what is time? <laughs> Is time a real object, something out there, or is it just 
something humans have made up? Is it a social construct? Do you think animals experience time? What about angels or God? And when are you most aware of time passing? Well, it's a form of measurement. I think it's different than God's time because uh, God looks at um, events to mark events along a, a timeline or a, a sequence of events. And we wear watches to tell us what time it is to measure. We realize the last time, time we ate the, you know. Time is a universal concept. This, our time is measured by our time is measured by the rotation of the earth, the amount of daylight and darkness. That's how, how time is measured by a bit. The earth going around in a circle once is one day. Um, time universally is measured that way. The, the seasons are measured by the earth's rotation. We don't perceive time with any of our senses. Time is a way that we relate one experience with another. Duration, order, change. One thing that's interesting is that you can tell a lot about a person's worldview by the way they conceive of time. And so we think about our idea of time you have a story option for the beginning and a story option for the end in your own life. Might start with a big bang, spontaneous generation, natural selection. Maybe the beginning is creation by competing gods. Maybe it's just an organic universe or Christian belief, creation by one pre-existent God. Then for the ending, you might have extinction, reincarnation, nirvana, or equivalence. Uh, you might become a ghost. Or, Christian belief, there's a resurrection and you are in heaven or hell. The point to note is that the meaning of my life depends on the story I choose to believe for the beginning and ending. But also time, like the gestation of a human being is nine months minus a few days. So it's, it's, it's um, a way of predicting when something will happen. Yeah, and that's, uh, so it's, it's a way of relating one experience with yeah. another. Uh, duration, order, change. Conception, yeah. birth. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and so the way that we, we think about this has implications for our lives and our own story. I won't go through all these, but there's a lot of different perspectives and ultimately it drives uh, how you live. So when we think about time biblically, um, one way we might view time is like this. Uh, time is kind of all extensive. It doesn't have a beginning or an end. And then we read the Bible and we have biblical period uh, goes down until 
time of Christ and a little bit afterwards, and then all the way down to today. And so seeing the biblical period and our, us today, seeing that kind of within some general concept of time. Um, that's, I think, a common way to, to see things, or seeing things as different periods. But um, I think that a better way to see it is, is seeing the biblical story and ultimately all of human history, part of which is told in the Bible, and a lot of which we have experienced since then and experienced today, is just a, a piece of the biblical story. The Bible tells a story that is much bigger which is itself um, all-encompassing. And so, with this, time only makes sense when it's a part of a story. Story only has meaning. It plays out through time. It seems uh, it's an interesting way to, to think of things, but uh, I think that it will make sense, again, when you, when you recall how the, the beginning of the story and the end of the story, how uh, different people, what your different belief on that um, will, will have ramifications. Your life, like, um, well, and look at Jesus when he, um, when he went, his family went to Jerusalem when he was like 12 and he stayed behind and the parents realized on the second or third day that he was missing so they went back to look at him, look for him and they found him he went back with his parents where he grew in wisdom and stature. And we never are told what that was, but in the Bible story, um, that wasn't as important as putting in different things in the Bible, um, you know, about his life that marked uh, the things that we, we need to know about. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh. Sorry. And also time, like I think it's uh, relevant uh, to God. He has seasons, spring, summer, fall, and winter. They're semi-predictable weather-wise and what happens, the, the trees bloom, the, all of the fig tree blossoms, whatever, you know. So it's to, uh, for us to acknowledge that God is a God of structure and pre-order, mm -hmm. yeah. So exactly, yeah. random chaos that yeah. I, it just occurred to me that without God, I think the human race would have went extinct oh, a yeah. long time ago. Many of us were going to beat each other to death with clothes. I mean, if it, yeah, if it would have been here, but yeah. uh, which we'd say it wouldn't have, but yeah. Well, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, yeah. there's always that. Yeah, yeah. we wouldn't have been created. That. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so time, again, time only makes sense when it's part of a story. Story only has meaning as it plays out through time. So bear with me as we look at the beginning of our story and the end of our story. Um, I drew this out a few, few weeks ago when we talked about the, uh, the connections between Genesis 1 through 3 and the end of Revelation. Here's again some of those connections, but seeing um, the way that Scripture begins somewhere and ends somewhere. Um, what I think we, we see is that God created time for a purpose, and that purpose was so that we remember Him. Genesis 1.14, it says, God said, let there be lights in the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark the appointed times and days 
and in years. They were to serve as appointed times. They were to function. They were to mark the days and uh, the, 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 uh, the cycle of the sun and the moon. All of this was to mark the appointed times. Um, the same word that's it's, it's used uh, in the feasts and celebrations of Israel, the appointed times. They have appointed times each year when they celebrate uh, the, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths. They, they, they have these things each year uh, after seven years and after 50 years. They have these uh, appointments with God, these days or these weeks, whatever, that are set apart, that are for a purpose, that are for uh, remembering God and for meeting with God. And from the very get-go, God says this in Genesis 1, that uh, the, the lights of the, the sky, they are to serve as signs to mark the appointed times and days and years. They are to um, mark our dates with God. They are to serve as, as a, an, an alarm clock uh, for our appointments. Have you ever given much thought to the Jewish thinking that sunset marks the beginning of the next day? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that it's not day and night, it's night and day. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. yeah. I've, I've heard some sermons lately about, about that. It's like, if you start thinking about the next day before you go to bed at night, you're going to have a better day tomorrow. You know? <laughs> um, so thinking about time in Revelation, we have a lot of time references in the book. We have specific times, 42 months, 1260 days, we have 1,000 years. <coughs> what this shows us is God has everything planned out down to the very moment talk about the near future, what will soon take place. Uh, the time is near. The time or the hour has come. Jesus says, I am coming soon. So since the time is short, we need to live intentionally, making the most of our time. We have uh, references to the past, the present, and the future. What is now, who was and is and is to come, who are and who were, the beast was, now is not, and will come. God's sovereignty oversees all time and all things. We have the old and new. The old order of things has passed away. I am making all things new, says God. And so when we think about time biblically, we have, in one respect, creation, the former things from below, in the beginning, and then we have, in another sense, the new creation, eternal life from above in the last days. Where we find ourselves is in that box in the middle, in the already not yet, in that uh, in-between. God, the ancient of days, delights in making everything new. And so what is the, the finish line? It is done in 1617. Compare that with Genesis 2.2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. Again, in 21.16, it says, he said to me, it is done. In Exodus 40.33, after Moses finishes the tabernacle, it is done. Psalm 22.33, this uh, entire poem about the, the crucifixion, at the very end, it closes with, for he had done it, he has finished it. And of course, 
Jesus' last words on the cross, it is done, uh, it is finished. What this shows us is Jesus finishes what he starts. He made a plan, Genesis 3.15, where at the very beginning, after the fall, God says that there will be enmity between the woman and her offspring and the the offspring of the serpent. But one day, the, the serpent will strike his heel and he will crush his head. He made this plan and he keeps his word. We have the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Again, we look at it this way. Alpha is the first, the Omega is the last. God is the master storyteller and story maker. God can improve on perfection. No night, no sun or moon, no sea, no serpent, no deceit. That is what we look forward to. We look forward to eternity forever and ever in Revelation. And we are also invited into God's eternity now. We are invited into the kingdom, into, into life in Christ. And so we need to live decisively and strategically in this age as we are pilgrims on the way. So Genesis 1.1 begins within the beginning Revelation 22:21. Amen. Beginning and the end, and we are somewhere in between. And so that's what Revelation shows us about time. We're such finite people that we all almost need some way to mark our uh, our lives, whether it be by a calendar, a watch, mm-hmm. yeah. or a season. Um, and we're in, in the Bible. It's an infinite, an infinite God, and that's hard for us to process. You know, at least mm-hmm. for me, sometimes. Yeah. yeah. That's, um, there's a song, and the lyrics of the song. He created everything with no point of reference. He's God in eternity, and he has no point of reference to say we're going to start here. <laughs> he has to make a, make that point, and then go from there. Well, let's see, we'll quickly go through uh, a biblical theology of the world. And this is not just in Revelation, this is in the writings of John, um, who I think wrote not only Revelation, but the Gospel of John, and then uh, the three letters of John. Uh, One thing that I think speaks to the fact that it was the same author is that you have a a very... uh, strong focus on the world in all of his writings. So in John's writings, in 50 chapters, he mentions the world 105 times, 2.1 times a chapter. By comparison, in Luke's writings, in 52 chapters, he mentions it 16 times, and in 87 chapters, Paul uh, mentions it 62 times, and so John seems to have this uh, very strong focus on the world, maybe an obsession with the world. And so what does, uh, what does John tell us about the world? Here we're doing biblical theology in a specific author. What does John tell us about the world? Well, he tells us uh, that it was created by God. Uh, uh, that random writing is 
supposed to be Greek font that apparently didn't come through because um, the fonts aren't installed on the computer. Anyway, uh, we, we learned that John, uh, John 1, he was in the world and the world was made through him. The, the cosmos was made through him. The world did not recognize him. We have the lamb slain from the creation of the world. It was created by God. We also learn, though, that it is set against God. There's this distinction from being from above and from below. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The world cannot accept him, the spirit, namely, because it neither sees him nor knows him. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. We also learn that it's a, it, the world is a world system subject to Satan and evil. Uh, we talked a lot about the dragon uh, and being thrown down, and it uh, leads the, the inhabited world, the, uh, the earth that, that does not uh, submit to God and his ways. The, the world worships the beast in 13.8. And there's a lot more that could be, could be said there. The world uh, of people will be tested. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon all the inhabited world to test those who live on the earth. However, we also learn that the world is loved by God and redeemed by Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only born son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The bread of life that gives life to the world. And Jesus says he is the light of the world. The world system additionally is subsumed by Christ. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Then in Revelation 1, uh, the seventh angel blows his trumpet, and the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign for all of eternity. So let me turn to 1 John real quick. First John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so there's characteristics of contemporary worldliness that John mentions, mentions the uh, desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the, desire, and the pride of life. Uh, boastings of what we have and do is how the NIV renders, renders it. And so uh, there's, there's many things we could mention, just the characteristics of worldliness in our own uh, age. Here's a quote from Kevin DeYoung. Worldliness is what any particular culture does to make sin look normal, 
and righteousness look strange. I think that's a really good quote. Um, Worldliness is what any particular culture does to make sin look normal and righteousness look strange. That's pretty astute. Yeah, it's a very very good one-liner. Yeah, it's a great quote. And so in our world, we... There, there's, I mean, so many things that we are being faced with pressures to, uh, to make sin look normal and righteousness look strange to, yeah, well, the, the Bible's outdated or, well, no, that's offensive that you believe that and you need to yeah. be, more, be more inclusive and tolerant. Yeah, and so uh, we are being pressured to, to, uh, to change and um, uh, to abandon these biblical convictions um, and so we, we as Christians must fight against that and um, hold all of these truths about the world in tension, but especially in, in the way that John talks about the world, seeing um, its negative influence. It also speaks to uh, the abounding love of God that he would love the world. Um, so there's a biblical theology of the world in John. Uh, we don't have time to do the kingdom of God, it's probably good that no one asked to do that one because it is like 50 slides. Uh, But it's a good one. Um, So were these exercises helpful in in showing what biblical theology is, how it works out in the whole Bible, in the book of Revelation, in the works of an author? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the time was Another interesting one was I would never have thought to do the biblical theology of time. Yeah. That was interesting. Mm-hmm. There's a lot there. Yeah. So yes. There. Yeah. 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 So any any questions uh, or thoughts on any of those those topics? Okay. Well, then if I could ask just for you to take a few minutes and do this evaluation. Thing that I put together. Um, you can write your name on it if you want. You don't have to. You can totally trash everything and tell me that I'm awful. Uh, uh, we're looking for, uh, and Gary and I, if we, as we've put a lot of time into this, we want this, again, to be something that uh, we can continue as a church and that we, um, we start to value these, these times of uh, of studying together and of, of learning, and so we're we're looking to improve and, and see what um, what would interest people. And so yeah, there's just a few questions on there. You I mean you can just kind of breeze through it, and a few comments you can put on the back just about things you might be interested in doing in the future, uh, any feedback you might have, and uh, yeah, it should be pretty self-explanatory. Uh, when it's like a scale of one to ten, one is bad. Ten is amazing. So, um, so you're trying to make us all into Marines. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sherry, would you mind passing out pens? And you have a few. Yeah. 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 If you if you don't have a, that's just if you don't have a pen. Um, They're not special. When do you think you would have the time to have contacts? Would start at the beginning, towards the like after the New Year, probably a couple weeks into January. Um, I'll take a little bit of a break uh, over Christmas, and everyone will, of course, and give us some time to kind of prepare and uh, put some things together. But we would hope to have something that we can 
most weeks of the year be doing, uh, doing some sort of uh, gathering like this. Looks like people are finishing up, but thank you all so much for uh, for sticking wind. I, I will mention uh, what Gary and I have been talking about doing for a next uh, a next type of class uh, is building off of this a model by uh, a book that came out this last year called Introducing Evangelical Theology by um, a guy named uh, Daniel Trier. He's a theologian, he's a professor at a, a seminary in the Chicago area. Um, it's really interesting, it's, it's built around um, the, the Nicene Creed, which is uh, a historic creed from uh, the fourth century, one that we've, uh, we, we've recited, I, I believe, a couple of Sundays here at Harvest. And he does a really good job of, um, I think, making things accept accessible, and he has essentially four parts to this book, and it's structured around um, the creed, which many of you have probably heard at some point, and it, it begins with, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And so he um, g goes through a whole section on uh, the Father, the Almighty Lord, um, talking about the triune name of God, the character of providence, God's um, ruling of all things, uh, the goodness of creation, and then of human beings. And so relating things in these categories. And so he does a, it's a systematic approach to theology, but he also incorporates um, these things uh, like biblical theology that we've been talking about and does a good job. And so one thing that um, we were thinking about doing is following this sort of outline um, and basing a lot of it off of the content and um, not requiring that everyone buys and reads it to be prepared for each week, but that uh, it would be a helpful resource. And so um, shifting from, you know, looking at one book, looking at Revelation and talking about things like how do we read the Bible and biblical theology, um, we thought it could be helpful to go to, to something like a, just a, as the title is, Introducing Evangelical Theology, just what, what do we believe as Christians, this uh, creed which is very old, very historic, that kind of shows what, what we believe as Christians, what Christians have always believed. We uh, yeah, that was one of them. And so um, it, it should be really good and, and should be, uh, I, I think, a helpful study just for some, um, just what, what do we believe as Christians and why. And so that is something that we'll probably be announcing in these next few weeks. Um, but yeah, as I, as I asked for some of your uh, feedback and, and what you're interested in, we would love to in the future do, do more things like this and, um, and cover a whole bunch of different topics. So, um, so thank you all for being willing to, to spend uh, your time on Sunday nights here. And I really appreciate it and had a great time. So uh, thank you all. Thank you. Yes, thank you for your time. You put a lot into it. Yeah. Enormous. Yeah, and obviously you understood what was going on in classes at seminary or school. So. Yeah, hanging in there. Thank you.